Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. But you are now tuned into our citation classics. Again, in our citation classics, we try to go over some of the highest cited papers on a relevant topic in the past 15 to 20 years, just so we can have an idea of what kind of a lot of people are listening to or reading and what most people are citing. So without further ado, we are now going to get into our spine citation classics for the day. And just a little bit more, if you have not already, go and check out the YouTube channel. Please go and hit the subscribe button. We are trying to get to a thousand subscribers. You listening to this could help us out a bunch. So please go and hit the subscribe button. If you haven't already, go ahead and join our email list so you can get updated with any updates that we have. And until further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All righty. Hey, everyone. Back here again. Spine Citations Classics. Uh, so hum. How's it? Hey, guys. And this uh Jay. So glad you guys are back with us again. All righty. So first things first, let's touch on a little background. Uh, when we're talking about disc herniations in the lumbar spine, it's important to understand the purpose of the discs. Uh, so these are cartilaginous shock absorbers between our intervertebral levels um, that are comprised primarily of three anatomic regions, the end plates, which articulate with the cranial and caudal vertebral bodies, uh, the nucleus pulposus in the center of the disc, which is a soft, um, soft, squishy material, and then the annulus fibrosus, which is, as its name suggests, the fibrous, tougher tissue on the periphery of the disc. Um, usually discardations happen in, in younger active patients um, that sometimes can have a story of lifting heavy, heavy stuff or, you know, being active and then feeling sudden electric shock down the leg associated with back pain. Um, and this happens usually around uh, the PLL or the posterior longitudinal ligament in the lumbar spine and affects the transversing nerve root. So the L5 nerve root at the L45 level, um, most commonly. Uh, usually the symptoms patients experience are related to the mechanical nerve compression, as well as inflammatory mediators at the local site of herniation. Um, and management is often conservative to begin with, uh, with no advanced imaging required unless there are red flag symptoms present, like progressive weakness, cotti equina syndrome, loss, or, loss of bowel or bladder function, things like that. Um, and then if symptoms persist after conservative management, then we talk about advanced imaging with MRIs, um, and patients are then uh, usually candidates for surgical intervention. Um, and the surgical intervention we discuss usually includes uh, lumbar discectomy, microdiscectomy, and uh, endoscopic discectomy. So just in brief. Uh, we got a couple of papers to present for you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into the first one here, which is um, the SPORT trial, which stands for surgical, uh, surgical versus non-operative treatment for lumbar disc herniation uh, from the spine patient outcome research trial. So the original paper, um, it was a randomized control trial to compare discectomy versus conservative treatment for lumbar disc herniations. Uh, and that was out of uh, the Dartmouth Medical Center, uh, Weinstein et al., um, and uh, published in JAMA in 2006. So they originally had a two-year follow-up and then uh, then came out with um, updated results in 2014 with eight-year follow-up, uh, which they published in, in the Spine Journal. So we'll go ahead and kind of just touch base on, on both of these papers. Um, so a little bit of background, like we mentioned, discectomy is the most commonly performed procedure for patients that have symptomatic disc herniations that fail conservative management. Um, and the SPORT trial was initiated to uh, kind of fill this void where we had a lack of solid, uh, you know, level one evidence 
um, and long-term results on comparing conservative management with uh, surgical discectomy. Um, so the original cohort in the, uh, the JAMA article consisted of a randomized cohort. And then in the future paper, they added a, a prospective cohort from other surgical centers. Um, so that's kind of relevant here. Um, so they, like I said, they started with uh, their first medical center and um, they compared these randomized groups uh, with conservative treatment and surgical uh, microdiscectomy. And uh, the inclusion criteria were basically radicular pain um, greater than six weeks um, and a single intervertebral level disc herniation. So um, it's important to know that the, the outcomes they looked at were both measured with an intent, intention to treat and an as-treated analysis. Um, and that'll become relevant when we talk a little bit about the results here. So in the first paper by Weinstein et al, um, what they looked at was the intention to treat analysis and uh, in primary and secondary outcomes, which were consistently higher for the surgery group at two years, but not statistically significant. Um, so these outcomes included sciatica bothers, bothersomeness, work status, patient satisfaction with symptoms, self-rate improvement, physical function, um, as you can see kind of in the charts there. Uh, the statistically significant improvement in secondary outcomes was a sciatica severity and self-rated improvement. Um, and this was, you know, probably the most important part of this original paper. Um, and it's important to note that their intention to treat analysis, what that means is that they basically take the randomized groups and even if patients crossed over from, you know, being assigned surgery to deciding they wanted to go with conservative treatment or vice versa, they treat the groups as they were originally uh, randomized to avoid any bias. And uh, so this, this has been published and known to sometimes underestimate efficacy of treatment. So um, if anything, this is kind of underreported data. So then they also performed an as-treated analysis where they take the randomized groups and then if they cross over, they move them into whichever group they end up in. And this showed strong statistically significant advantages for surgery at all point in time for primary and secondary outcomes. So strongly in favor of, of surgical treatment um, versus continued conservative treatment after six weeks of symptoms. So in the eight-year follow-up outcome, Luria et al. also, you know, they added this um, uh, cohort uh, that was non-randomized, as well as, you know, they continued to follow the, the original randomized cohort eight years out. Um, so again, in the intention to treat analysis, all the measures eight years out favored surgery, only statistically significant were the same secondary outcomes of sciatic and bothersomeness and self-rated improvement. Um, and then there was, in the as-treated and combined analysis, all, all outcomes were statistically significant in favor of surgery, um, except for work status, which is uh, you know, not a super significant outcome in my opinion. So basically the conclusion of this support trial is in patients that have lumbar disc herniations with radicular symptoms after six weeks of failing conservative treatment, surgery has superior outcomes for relieving symptoms and improving function, um, including up to eight years out from intervention. Um, and this is important because this is, uh, you know, one of the first long-term follow-up randomized control trials to demonstrate uh, this uh, superiority of surgical intervention for, for disc herniations. Yeah, it's just super juicy for any spine surgeon, right? I mean, it's clearly saying, okay, we should do surgery because it's going to make you feel better. Uh, so this, it's one of these things that you see quite a bit, like on any questions or anything like that. The sport trial is uh, brought up and uh, it's highly quoted, as you see. Uh, but just like you mentioned, the the whole intent uh, to treat and as treated analysis made all the difference in this because, um, 
the intent to treat actually wasn't very well it was it was trending towards being significant but it wasn't actually statistically significant which you know if you're on the spine side of things and you know you want this this is a you know, a pretty high level paper, you wanted to say, hey, surgery is better than non-operative management. But truthfully, it, like you like you mentioned, there's so much crossover, right? You probably should look at it as the as treated because there was such a huge shift in patients going from non-op to surgery and from surgery to non-op. Uh, then when you look at that, just like you said, yeah, it, it shows that surgery uh, is beneficial as far as relieving these symptoms. So yeah, definitely. I think that that's kind of why uh, I maybe kind of glanced over the combined analysis on the bottom of the slide, too. Um, and like you mentioned, so they, you know, their intended treat is great, but they had tons of crossover. The as treated is great, but it has a little bit of bias. And so then the combined analysis, I mean, I think that's a good, happy medium. And again, that was, uh, you know, like you said, in statistically significant in favor for surgery for uh, all outcomes. So I think that, um, like you mentioned, I've, you know, I've been pimped on this paper. Uh, we've talked about it in journal clubs in my program, and uh, it's definitely all over the OID and orthobullet. So definitely a super high yield paper for uh, disc herniations. Absolutely. Got to be like one of the most high yield <laughs> papers that uh, residents get. I feel like you you will hear about the sport trial, whether you're into to spine or not. So definitely. glad that you guys went over this one for sure. All righty. Well, we'll keep moving along, go to the next paper, and uh, I'll pass the reins over to Jose. Thank you, sir. Um, basically, um, what I'm presenting here is, is uh, post-lateral endoscopic exclusion for lumbar discectomy. This is, was uh, presented by Guillermo and all at 2002 on spine. And basically, this study was conducted a retrospective view involving 307 consecutive cases of lumbar disc herniation done by um, post-lateral endoscopic uh, discectomy. Basically, the concept, the main point of this uh, paper was basically to review the um, We'll go back to see um, when these patients have gone through these these um, surgeries and want to basically see the outcomes of it in terms of complications and et cetera there. And um, basically the, the little background of it, uh, this con this idea about uh, using um, endoscopic approaches is has been in existence for the last um, last um, um, 90, 90 so odd, almost nine years so far. And over time there, as you can see here, see here in these time these time chart here basically shows you that over time has gone down different approaches there especially for spinal decompression as well as also later on um, they have improved it for non-visual post-lateral continuous uh, nucleotomies and then by within the last um within the last 25 uh, years or so there the we we developed it because there was one approach it was called transforaminal approach and we came in there and then afterwards we had the transluminal uh, approach to as well. For the next um, for the next paper, this I'll explain a little further detail about these two here, and then basic and then um, so what they did was in order so to do this they have reviewed three hundred seven um, cases involving the postlateral endoscopic technique approach during an eight year period, and they the follow up for it was was um, started on date on um, post operative day two, and then from two weeks, one month, two months, six months, 12 months, and every 12 months. And then the outcomes, as I mentioned, would, was uh, evaluated based on two methods. The first was to perform the assessment based upon one year after the uh, initial operation of the surgery itself. And then the second part is basically sent out questionnaires to a patient. It was basically a five uh, question questionnaire, basically 
um, asking them what was basically the, um, how was the, the surgery? Will you recommend it? Um, do you suffer any kind of uh, sur- um, any kind of um, symptoms? For example, do you suffer from leg pains or muscle weakness or any cramps, etc.? Basically, just give them their assessment, see, and and we just plotted a trajectory on based on it. And then afterwards, um, in the I put a note here, Arthur uses a uh, freehand biplane CR guided access in optical trajectory and to endoscopic landmarks. In the next, as I mentioned, in the next paper, I'll go a little bit detail of this because it's quite significant in, in using approaches for which one to use transluminal and transluminal there. And then um, from the results there shows that overall that um, they had a very high, rather, rather high satisfaction rate of 89.3% of the cases shown that um, had very high satisfaction overall there. Um, 90% of the patients had a uh, good satisfaction rate um, at, at, for, at one year post um, operative. Um, of course, just like anything else, you have to monitor its complications there. They were very, they were very slim there, but among some of the most common ones that the most they have ever seen was basically uh, this arthritis was, uh, this arthesia was, was common, was found, was found there, as well as also uh, others include thrombolytis and also the infections there, which, which um, eventually that all the patients made full recovery from those complications there. So basically, um, they, so basically from all from the um, surgery that was complete here, based upon different levels and so forth, because about ninety five percent of all the of the surgery that was done at different levels, mostly from L four to L five, and then L five to S one, and um, which shows that in in shows overall that using the the um, endoscopic approach was very. Um, very effective and, and very efficient for um, when you compare it to the um, to the regular open approaches there. And of course, uh, one and since it falls under that big uh, minimum invasive surgery approach, which basically that had very little um, use, like when you would do in an open surgery, like having a large incision, using a lot of retractors and so forth. But um, because because of this approach here, it shows that um, it could be a, a suitable a suitable um, approach for patients that if it's if it's warrant to it, especially compared to the open or any other uh, microsectomies approaches there, especially for let's say for example for for um, laminectomies, spinal decompressions, and even um, disc removals as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a you know pretty good conclusion. There is basically like uh, you know you see a lot of patients post op from spine surgery and they have. Um, you know, pretty severe spasm and, and pain associated with the dissection we have to do just by disrupting those paraspinal muscles and elevating them off of the uh, the bony structure. So, you know, that's kind of one of the values of endoscopic surgeries. Um, you know, it's muscle sparing and, and patients don't have to experience, uh, you know, the, the pain associated with dissection. Um, and then obviously this is a retrospective review. So uh, there's no control group and, and nothing to compare these outcomes with, which is um, you know, probably one of the limitations I see with this study. Yep. And it's something actually that just the whole endoscopic uh, surgery, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with it myself, but I think between this one and maybe that next paper that we're going to talk about, but I mean, if you're, you're having similar outcomes uh, compared to some of the other studies that's been out there for open procedures, I mean, it sounds like a win-win if you can get the learning curve for these types of procedures and you still have the similar outcomes 
faster recovery, quicker back to work and things like that. It seems like it, it's very helpful. Like I say, I'm, I'm still learning a whole lot about the minimally invasive type techniques, but uh, this paper did show that it's, it's, it's safe and uh, you, you can use this for these types of uh, herniations. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, I haven't seen any endoscopic either. We do we do micro discs at my institution with, with the microscope, which is exactly. you know, semi-MIS, but not a true endoscopic, I guess. Yep. Same, so, same. Cool. We do a lot under the scope, which is nice. The scope is pretty nice, yeah, uh, especially sure. in a setting with residents. You know, like I don't, I'm not exactly sure how everything is set up with the endoscopic procedures, but uh, with the scope, there's two sides. So, you know, the yeah. attending can be on one side and you can see the exact same thing that he sees uh, from the other side. And you you are still able to uh, get kind of get your hands in there and kind of help out as well. I don't know if it's that easy to do that with the endoscopic type procedure. I feel like that's like a one man show. Yeah, um, for sure. But it, a lot of times, a lot of times it does involve uh, as a one person because you're driving the the uh, camera and then the actual probe itself there to to um, do procedures there. And um, one of the one of the disadvantages sometimes to endoscopic a lot of times is that it takes like a longer time there. It's, it's kind of like when you do uh, robotic surgery. Yeah. Sure, it's very similar to it. Sure, it's a, it gives you a minimum surgery approach there. But the, the thing is that a lot of times that since you're, you're not actually actually doing directly on it, you're, it takes a lot more time to, um, to learn the functions as well as even to, to, even to visualize the, um, the, the area that you're working. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Yeah. Gonna... Same th- yeah. I've definitely heard some residents say like, Hey, it's just, you got to really be really good at your anatomy. Cause just from what you're seeing is kind of difficult just cause it's not so open, you know? Yeah. And that's what our staff all say too, is, you know, master the master the open techniques and, and you can learn endoscopic in practice. It's uh, you got to learn the anatomy and, and be good at it open before you can do it through a scope. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to bring it on to the next one, which is kind of on the same train of thought here. Okay, and then um, as I mentioned earlier, there this next paper here is basically uh, was presented by Rune and all from in two thousand eight, published in Spine. Um, this is basically to show the uh, different approaches to to different in comparison to with the open uh, approaches, particularly the intralaminar uh, and transforminal lumbar disectomies, along with uh, microscopic um, approaches there. So basically, we're just comparing all to see how compatible are these approaches are. So and I think just sorry to interrupt you, but just important, important to highlight, this is a prospective randomized control trial. So this is level one evidence that, you know, all orthopedic surgeons are, are on the hunt for. So uh, whenever you see that, you know, it's, um, you know, it's worth at least looking at the, at these types of studies. Basically for the uh, little bit of background about it, as I mentioned from my previous presentation there, the concept of endoscopics has been around since from decades ago, but it's only from the 1980s and on, we see this more and more common there. And compared to, when you compare to convention, according to previous studies, when compared to regular conventional open surgeries, they had produces good results, not just good results, but all sometimes better um, outcomes there, particularly decreases um, post-operative infections, complications, or any other, um, or even other, maybe even some, in many cases that it's the, um, you can, the patient can have the surgery, have the surgery and we return home the same day there. And as, in addition to it, as the last point there mentioned, that it also reduces any um, tissue damages and, and other, and causing other um, 
um, issues around the surrounding structures, particularly if you surround, let's say, a blood vessel, a nerve, so without any further concerning about any interference there. And so for, for the methods there, what they did was they enrolled uh, 200 patients in who have known have uh, has systematic uh, disc herniation, have undergo um, discectomies. And um, among the, they divide the clue in the paper, they did inclusions based upon different um, back, different uh, backgrounds there. For the transforaminal, sequential material located cranially below the lower edge of the cranial pedicle or caudal, now over the middle or the caudal pedicle. And the second one is lateral radiology evidence of foramen was not overlaid by the pelvis beyond the middle of the cranial pedicle and all extra intrafemoral discarnations there. Basically, they, the way, the, usually the transforaminal is basic because of the way you position the patient, because the patient's usually positioned on a prone position. And, and usually with an endotransforaminal approach, you can do it from the lateral, lateral approach to, to access to the, to get to the, uh, to the disc and so forth there. However, and that's usually, usually you have that around, the, the issue will come is when you have to deal with lower levels, particularly let's say L4 to L5, L5 to S1 levels, where sometimes it could be hindered by surrounding structures like muscles, blood vessel, et cetera there. And by that point, you may want to switch over to an interim laminar approach there. As mentioned there, it could be, be mainly because this is more of a in within the spinal cord instead of the out, like what you do for a transforaminal there. And basically, um, as an alternative, instead of using the trans um, foraminal approach, then afterwards, afterwards, all the data will be collected to assess um, pain uh, score as well as for back and leg, and as well as addition. Because this study was done in Germany, they will do the North American spine surgery um, German version of that um, NASS um, instrument, as well as also the Austrian lower back pain disability questionnaire. And, and overall, when they did the results there, it was shown, it was shown that, um, that there has been improvement in both of the endoscopics and endoscopic groups have been um, shown that has shorter duration compared to the conventional microscopic approach. In addition, all the complication has been has shown improvement in both uh, for, for, for pain as well as also blood loss has been shown to be very minimal and when compared to the um, to regular and even the, the regular open and even the, the microdestomy approach, which have shown that the, this, um, overall this have shown that, that the, both the in full endoscopic approaches has been shown to be very, very, very helpful in determining the, to improve patients' um, outcomes compared to microdestomies and even open surgeries there, as mentioned before. And of course, um, and as I mentioned, as mentioned earlier, there a lot of times of these approaches, you have to really see um, what and to see um, what is best for based upon what level you're in, and as well as also um, what approaches and how you do it there. Because the key, the, one of the key things is mentioned in the paper that has mentioned that you have to use your, the C arm very extensively in order to in order to see your the angle and positioning of your needle there because um, in order to prevent, is able to see if you can be access to it, either through a transforaminal or if not to an intraluminal approach there. And one thing I forgot to mention, there's the fact that the, because of the full, endos, the full endoscopic approach has been shown to, to um, less dependent on any pain meds 
compared to compared to using conventional approaches there. Okay, and um, basically, basically overall, there it shows that um, the um, the both both the the full endoscopic approaches has been shown to be has been very shown to be very um, effective there in terms of the it's been shown to be very effective, sufficient, and safe compared to the microscopic surgical approaches, and um, and and in many cases there it has is both is advantages, despite disadvantages, there's still a lot of advantages towards it, and as well as with minimal damages to the surrounding tissues and even any diminishing any complication overall there. So as in, as I meant, as we stated, um, we stated earlier that the only, the only issue can be with these, uh, these endoscopic approaches is basically the timing, because it's not like a regular open surgery it takes some time there to, to get the good angle of visualization. And a lot of times you have to depend on um, good anatomical landmarks in order to give you a, a bearing to see where you're going there. Because if that is hindered for whatever reason for, like for example, it could be a, uh, a lower dorsal uh, spine, could be arthritis. A lot of times it could be very difficult at times and you have to readjust it, which can take time there. But once, it, once you get the good hang of it, you will find out that it has great outcomes overall. Yeah. And just like you mentioned, I think there's probably that learning curve, right? Where there's going to be a period of time where these cases are taking you a whole lot longer than if you were to do just a standard minimally invasive type approaches. But looking at this particular paper here, and this is most likely because this was done by individuals who were used to using this technique. And, you know, so they're, they're probably not just like the, the first time guys doing this. They've probably done this quite a few times, but the mean operating time for the endoscopic group was 22 minutes and the minimally invasive group was at 43 minutes, which I was like, oh man, like I said, I haven't really had a lot of hands on with this, but I found out, I mean, the time is that much difference. I mean, that's actually pretty impressive. I yeah. mean, it's, it's almost like you can do two, two surgeries as long as it took you to do one, you know? Um, but I don't know exactly when they started counting, right? I don't know. Is that as soon as they make an incision? I don't know. Is that like counting when they had to start doing their x-ray fluoro shots or, or not? So I'm not exactly sure what they're saying, but I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive that, that difference in the operating time that they showed. Definitely. And one of the things, one of the things that I thought about when seeing that, uh, Jay was like, oh, well, maybe they're going quicker and they're, you know, maybe it'll lead to worse outcomes or, or higher risk of reherniation. Um, you know, but based on their results, it's, you know, the outcomes were equivalent, reported outcomes were good. They had no statistically significant increase in reherniation. Um, and, you know, so basically what my conclusion from this was that it's faster, there's less blood loss and the outcomes and chance of reherniation are essentially the same. So that, I was like, you know, it kind of was, you know, interesting information to me because like Jose was saying, I would have thought the setup and using all these tools and stuff would definitely be uh added time exactly and i mean think about it on the other side of it as far as like a patient who's coming in because they have you know some disc herniation or something like that right and okay so one one minute someone's telling you well i can make a incision about an inch inch and a half or something like that and do your procedure through that versus you know i can make it three or four inches or five inches it's just people just like to hear this whole minimally invasive or, you know, smaller incisions and things like that. I think, I think more than anything, right. These, these outcomes are pretty similar and 
you know, I think this paper did show that people were doing better with rehab and getting back to work and things like that, which I think is important. And a patient probably would think is important too. But I think out of all of it, I think, you know, learning these skills now as young surgeons, like me and you all, uh, I, I, th I feel like it'll be a very good uh, marketing piece for one, for you to get a job and for also for you to have get patients. I think patients like to hear minimally invasive. They like to hear laser. They like to hear oh, small yeah. incisions. They like all these things. And it makes them feel a little bit uh, more safe about the, the procedure, even though you still got to explain to them like, hey, you know, this is still a real surgery. You know, I may have to, you know, if something goes wrong, maybe we do have to make a larger incision and, and change our plan and things. But I think being able to be that particular guy for your practice can 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 be uh, a big benefit. Uh, one of the things that I've seen from just like I'm in the middle of uh, doing interviews for spine fellowships, I feel like most places, if they have older staff who's been out of training for a certain, I don't know, you know, extended period of time, they tend to do less of this type of minimally invasive type procedures versus if they have a new guy that's been that's come that's come out in the last five years or so. Uh, because I, I just feel like they expect that new guy to kind of have some grasp on some of this stuff. So um, yeah. just something I've been kind of noticing. That's interesting. And I, I wonder one is like, you know, they already have an established practice. They don't need marketing They are You know, they don't need to bring patients in um, and they're comfortable in what they know. And so probably all of those factors, right? Like they want a new part and they want somebody to bring them to the, something they're going to bring to the table. Obviously from your perspective, you need to have something about you that brings patients to your practice. And, and uh, you know, like you're saying, I, I've kind of seen the same thing in joints as well, where, um, you know, a lot of the patients are asking by name for, you know, minimally invasive hip replacements, which is, you know, just an anterior hip replacement with a 10 centimeter incision instead of a 12 or 14 centimeter incision. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, they want to know that there's a robot in the room so it may not be doing much. It's just comforting, like you mentioned. So and they like to hear it. <laughs> they yeah. like to hear it. They like to know that's the kind of case they've been involved in. They know that it's newer and up to date and things like that. So I think uh, patients are liking it. I think it's a good strategy if you're in a job market, you know, and uh, you see, I mean, I think these things all have a learning curve, right? But I think if you know what you're doing with them, they all tend to have good uh, or similar outcomes. So I think it's definitely worth worth learning. Cool. Certain, it's certainly there, especially when you learn about the robotic navigation systems. It's, it's very similar to it, to the the uh, the endoscopic approaches there. It takes a, In the beginning, it takes a while to get the learning curve there, but after repetitive um, usage and understanding its systems and functions, you it, you become more of an expertise on it with over time there. Exactly. Yeah, for exactly. sure. Yeah, we had some staff resistant to using NAV for Scully uh, when I first started, and um, you know, now we're doing basically all of our scolies, especially neuromusculars under NAV. Um, you know, it's like almost, I mean, I would say in our, in our lifetime or our education, it's become the standard of care. It's like, uh, at least I may be over speaking just because I'm not obviously familiar with what happens everywhere around the country, but at least in my institution, it's become the standard of care. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, I think it's good to learn you know, all this stuff, right? You need to learn how to do navigation. You need to do, learn how to put in screws through, you know, using landmarks, just freehand. Uh, you know, you need to learn how to work through the scope. You need to learn how to work through the loops. Uh, so I think, you know, for newer surgeons or people who are interested in spine or joints, I think you just need to learn, get somewhere where you can learn all of these things. Uh, you want to learn op open, closed, percutaneous. I mean, you need to know all of these things so that when you get out, you can kind of choose 
what you would like to to do and how you would like to do things because you have a little bit of experience of everything. So that right. would be the best the best idea, I think. Cool. Well, I'm going to kind of flatten out the excitement a little bit here with this next one, a little bit of basic sciences for everyone. Um, this is actually a pretty interesting paper uh, out of the JBJS published in 2001 by Burke et al. Um, so it's a cross-sectional study. Uh, and essentially what they wanted to look at was uh, they did a ELISA to look at the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, interleukins, prostaglandins, and patients who had radicular symptoms, which they refer to as sciatica, um, in either due to a, a lumbar disc herniation uh, or in patients with discogenic low back pain, which is kind of a nebulous term um, that I personally uh, you know, haven't seen a ton uh, because some of my staff aren't fully believers in that. Um, so basically what these guys did uh, I guess I'll give you a little bit of background. Sorry. So there's some studies out there talking about disc herniations. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the pathology comes from mechanical compression of the nerve root, but also from when that annulus ruptures, uh, there is a production of pro-inflammatory cytokines similar to like a tendon tear. Um, and you know, that, that causes you to have an inflammatory cascade and, and, and eventually pain. Um, so in patients that have degenerative disc disease and discogenic back pain, there's been some basic science research that show they have hypersensitive and nerve endings at the end plates, and that may be related um, to their pain. But like I said, overall discogenic low back pain is, is kind of nebulous. Um, and there's no real imaging study to diagnose it. Some people do discography, which is essentially when they do, uh, I think they do a, like a saline load under fluoro into the disc um, to see if that recreates symptoms. And I do believe there's been some papers that have come out that say that violating the annulus via discography actually accelerates degeneration of the facet joint. So uh, I'm not really sure if people are still doing that. I've never heard of it, but it was something that these authors did to confirm um, the diagnosis of discogenic low back pain in the patients they enrolled. So like I mentioned, uh, they were comparing patients who underwent discectomy for sciatica or radicular symptoms from a herniated disc. Um, and then they were comparing that to disc material from patients who underwent lumbar inner body fusion for discogenic low back pain. It's kind of the thought behind that, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, when you have this discogenic low back pain, um, you know, your discs are in between your, your vertebra and the facet joints um, are the joints, you know, posterior to the, the disc and posterior to the fecal elements that are moving, um, you know, causing degeneration of the disc. So if you're fusing that level and you're no longer having motion at that segment, in theory, it should, it should relieve pain. So that's why these patients were indicated for um, inner body fusion. So the, inner, the, the markers they looked at were, you know, TNF-alpha, IL-1, IL-6, IL-8, and PGE-2. Um, and then here's some exclusion criteria uh, on patients that they um, had to take out of their study. So the results of note were that significant quantities of pro-inflammatory mediators were produced in both, uh, you know, the herniate, disc herniation and the discogenic back pain groups. Um, and, you know, there was no TNF or IL-1, but high, high presence of IL-6, IL-8, and PGE-2. Um, and there was a significantly increased quantity of IL-6 and IL-8 in the discogenic low back pain groups compared to the um, disc herniation group. Uh, and so, you know, that was interesting. And, you know, they're present in both, but uh, definitely in high quantities in the discogenic back pain. Um, and, you know, I thought that that was slightly interesting as, you know, we see a lot of back pain. It's one of the most common complaints that primary care doctors see, that ER doctors see. Um, and, and we don't have great things to tell these patients other than, you know, continue your conservative care, continue your PT, your lumbar stabilization, 
do supportive stuff if you need chiropractic, yoga, stretching, massage. You know, basically what I tell patients when I see them is if it helps, it helps. And so I think having, uh, you know, this, this assay or this biochemical test could be of value. And that's kind of what the authors concluded is that um, these pro-inflammatory mediators in patients that underwent inner body fusion for low back pain uh, suggest that they, you know, that they have a role in, in the pathology. And one, it could potentially lead to diagnostic testing um, to aid the diagnosis, as well as a target for non-surgical treatments. For example, anti-inflammatories, which is what we tell these patients all the time, naproxen, you know, sometimes you do a medrol pack and all these effects, the, the pathways, if you guys remember way back to basic sciences, those arachidonic acid pathways that produce pro-inflammatory mediators, that's what we're targeting in these patients with back pain. So this is a nice little paper, um, I guess, just providing some evidence behind what we're telling these patients. So it makes me feel more comfortable when I tell somebody that, hey, maybe take some naproxen for your back pain. I know it'll actually help. That's kind of what I drew from this. Yeah, I think, you know, just like you said, back pain is one of those issues. I mean, we always highlight and tell people, you know, back pain is multifactorial. Uh, and, you know, truth of the matter is we don't have a great grasp on all of it, on how to make uh, all back pain um, go away, why some people have a normal MRI and have horrible back pain, or why some people have a horrible MRI but have no back pain. It's like, uh, it's, it's one of those things in medicine, but, uh, I, I didn't, I really did like this paper, just kind of seeing this, uh, the basic science behind it all and, uh, seeing, you know, the more the nucleus proposes is exposed, seeing like they start to have more of that inflammatory reaction going on. I just thought it was interesting overall. And just like you say, Hey, incest should help with this, uh, injections toward this area. Hopefully that should help with this, you know? So I thought it was just interesting overall. Yeah. And that'll be a perfect segue to our next paper. Um, talking about things that can mitigate inflammation, uh, such as steroid injections, like you alluded to. So this is a, in what I thought to be a, a pretty interesting paper as well. Um, prospective randomized control trial published in Spine in 2002 out of HSS uh, by BJ Vad et al. Um, and so what, what this author was interested in was, was comparing uh, transpyramidal epidural steroid injections with saline trigger point injections in patients who had sciatica symptoms, i.e. lumbosacral radicular symptoms, um, resulting from a herniated uh, lumbar disc. So kind of just going back to the beginning of this talk, when we talked about background, the first step of treating these patients, you know, we don't, we obviously have shown that in patients who have six weeks of persisting symptoms, surgery has superior outcomes. But prior to those six weeks, there's a lot of data that shows that a lot of these disc herniations can resolve with conservative care. Um, and so conservative care includes things like physical therapy, NSAIDs, oral steroids, um, chiropractic, PT, yoga. Um, and part of that arsenal includes these transferaminal epidural steroid injections. And it's also something you can try for patients who may meet surgical criteria, but are slightly hesitant. So that's kind of what uh, Dr. Vad was interested in looking at is to see if these, these injections were truly therapeutic um, by comparing them with uh, low back trigger point injections. Um, and then of note, I think it's important that all these patients have the same PT rehab protocol and, and bracing protocol. So uh, trying to you know, keep it as, uh, you know, similar as possible in both groups. Uh, so we'll kind of talked about this a little bit here already, but a little bit of background. Yeah. So one of the things that he mentioned also in this background is that, uh, and I've seen this cause I'm doing a little bit of research here on these epidural steroid injections, um, with one of my attendings here, IU, but, um, there's really poor reproducibility in the outcomes of epidural steroid injections. And, and, you know, some studies cite 40% success rate. I've seen 80% success rate, 
Um, so it's kind of all over the place. And so that was one of the reasons he, he suggested doing a, a randomized trial on this. Um, so they had 50 patients and they divided them into two groups. Um, I think it's important to note that the patients were not blinded to treatment. So they knew whether they were getting an epidural or, or a trigger point injection. Um, and then they had uh, pretty specific inclusion and exclusion criteria. And their primary outcomes of interest were uh, both subjective and objective uh, scores, rolling more score, visual numeric score, and then uh, finger to four distance, which is basically just a measure of hip flexion and then an overall patient satisfaction score. Um, so the results, uh, important to highlight what they defined as a success is what they called uh, a satisfaction score of good or very good, increase in, in rolling more score of greater than five, and pain reduction greater than 50% reported at one year after treatment. So group one, the transferaminal group, 84% um, achieved success, as I defined, um, compared to only 48% in the trigger point injections. And this was statistically significant, um, and it is uh, important to note that the group one did achieve maximal improvement slightly faster um, than the trigger point injection group two. So, you know, obviously, we talked about the value of prospective randomized control trials. I've probably hit that uh, over the head a couple of times today, but uh, this is a, what we look for in orthopedics and, and probably in medicine as a whole um, to guide our treatments is uh, level one evidence. Um, so, you know, this was a, a good study in showing that at least compared to trigger point injections, um, these epidural steroid injections may have uh, a, a good role. And, um, you know, I've seen it in clinic and I've seen it here in my institution. Is that something we, we use pretty significantly um, in these patients that have uh, lumbar disc herniations? And so obviously limited by sample size. Uh, overall, they ended up with an N of 48, so they lost two patients to follow up, uh, and the fact that patients weren't blind into treatment. But um, I think overall, this kind of combined with the, the paper we talked about before, talking about pro-inflammatory mediators, it kind of um, you know all ties together uh, how these steroids are working and, and what pathways they're working on um, and why they're helping patient symptoms. So I think that was the value of this paper for me. Yep, it's a really good paper. Uh, you know, the whole blinded situation that that of course that's going to make a difference but you know how much of that can you do you know it's some of the ethics and things like that get a little difficult with with the blinding sometimes but uh i you know of course the people who know they got the actual treatment always usually in studies they tend to do better and the people who knew that they got the more like placebo placebo like uh treatment they tend to do a little bit worse that's goes into like some basic psychology stuff, but, uh, overall I like the paper, uh, you know, just from the clinic side, it does seem like epidural steroid injections do help. So I'm glad that this one did push towards that, towards that direction. And I think it was a good paper overall. If anybody can uh, put together a paper where you can, uh, take people and randomly put either steroid or saline into their spinal canal. I mean, Hey, go for yeah. it. But, uh, you know, otherwise I think this was really good. Yeah, for sure. And this is interesting. At least I, I kind of had a personal, uh, I think bias to this paper because we're looking at some, some epidural steroid stuff here and seeing, um, you know, cause our, our injectionist here, he's a neuroradiologist and he uses contrast dye. I think it probably does prior to putting in the steroid just to make sure he's in the right place. I mean, and there's some debate out in the world, uh, where you should put these injections. And so, uh, we're kind of looking at, the, the, the flow patterns of the dye and, and trying to see if there's, you know, any superiority of one over the other. So um, nobody steal my project out there, but that's what, that's what we're working on here at IU. <laughs> Sounds pretty interesting. Sounds pretty interesting. They even mentioned this whole situation about a washout. I, I don't know. You might've mentioned that, but 
just saying that, you know, does putting this fluid around this area kind of wash out some of those inflammatory factors that we were just mentioning in the previous paper? Does so does washout play a role in, in some of the pain improvement as well? I just thought that was kind of interesting because I never even thought about it. Um, but yeah, plenty of good stuff. And uh, I think this is the last one, guys. Yeah, that is it. Awesome. Well, again, guys, you all did a wonderful job. I'm hoping everybody who listened in is really uh, able to get something from these talks. And I hope you all are enjoying the new uh, spine citation uh, classics segment. All right, guys. See you guys soon. See y'all next time. See y'all next time, I hope you all enjoyed that episode featuring Dr. Fitz, Soham, and Jose. They did a great job talking about everything uh, spine related. Uh, Please go ahead and hit the subscribe button and we will see you next week for some more action. And if you like some of our in-between weekly things, go ahead and enjoy those.